Welcome to A Handful of Hope, where we bring you heart-to-heart conversations with heart-centered people. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of A Handful of Hope. I am so happy and grateful to have Leslie Barber with us here today, who founded Grief Warrior after experiencing firsthand the overwhelming intensity of grief and the discomfort that our culture has with death and grieving. On June 21st, 2015, her husband, Steve, died. That day, the summer solstice, the longest day of the year, became the worst day of her life. Grief Warrior was founded to bring recognition, respect, and reconnection to the grieving through organizational trainings and workshops, individual group coaching, digital courses, and heartfelt sympathy gifts for grievers. Her LinkedIn learning course, Supporting a Grieving Employee, a Manager's Guide, was first of its kind. Leslie spent the last two decades running her own business and supporting other entrepreneurs with theirs at Intuit QuickBooks. She has written for entrepreneur.com and Small Biz Daily, is a trained coach by the world-renowned Coactive Training Institute, and has an MBA from the Kellogg School of Management. Leslie, welcome and thank you so very much for being here. Thanks, Jesse. Thrilled to be here. You know, this is, this is so random, but I find it so fascinating when somebody gives a date, how quickly it can prompt us to consider something that we, we hadn't considered before. And I was, you were sharing with me before we got on about how June is a rough month for you because there's the anniversary of your husband's death, but it's also his birthday month. And just as you were, you were, as I was reading yours, I all of a sudden realized that I have that, I share that with you and that I had my, my friend took his life on June 15th. I had another friend that actually passed away. And I think he passed away on the 20th or the 21st. And there was a, a couple other things in there too. And it's, it's just, you know, I find it so incredibly fascinating, the human condition, right? How we can have these, these moments in our lives that you're here, I'm here, and somebody else is over here, and you can be going through this traumatic loss, and for somebody else over here, the worst thing that happens to them that day is, you know, they're five minutes late to work because they took a wrong turn, and that seems so big in that moment. Oh, definitely. It's these, these death anniversaries or these anniversaries where we're remembering something traumatic that's happened to us, they stay with us, right? They stick with us. Um, and you're right. The, the rest of the world keeps turning when ours has maybe stopped. Um, when you were talking, it brought up this story that, um, that is so touching to me that my husband, you know, he died at 345 in the morning on June 21st, which actually also happened to be Father's Day that year. And our daughter was six at the time. And she woke up that next morning and she said to me, mommy, I had this nightmare that daddy died. And I said, oh, honey, he, he did. He did die. And you were there and you told him you loved him and you went back to sleep afterwards. And she immediately burst into tears and she ran over to her little art desk and she started writing something on pieces of paper and went outside and was throwing them these pieces of paper on our neighbor's lawns. And when we gathered one, it said, my daddy died and it gave our address. And it was just this little moment where this tiny little six-year-old child recognized that her world had stopped, but the rest of the world was still shopping at Target and still buying their food and still 
moving forward and still, you know, um, working and doing all the things that we had done before Steve got sick. So it's really, it, it's impactful. That story, you had shared it once with me privately, and it, it touched me so profoundly, not just because of the gesture and the, the image of seeing this six-year-old little girl going out into the world and, and doing what she knew how to do of, of approaching life without her father, but there's also almost the, the honesty in it, too. I feel like there's, you know, for many of us, one of the challenges with grief, and I'll let you get into this more because I know this is such a huge part of your work now, is that we feel this need to depress that grief. We have to hide it. And we have to keep it hidden from others. And here's your, here's your daughter at six years old being brave enough to not hide it, but to actually do the opposite, to express it, to, mm -hmm. to show it, to, to, to proclaim it and to, and to claim it at the same time. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's, it's just, it's so incredible. And it's like, where, where do we, where do we lose that? Right. Where do we lose that? I don't know. Is it courage? Is it bravery? Is it just an authenticity, like a, a true connection to ourself of your, your daughter has at six to then when we grow up and we become big kids or adults and we all of a sudden think that we're not supposed to do that, that we're actually supposed to depress it and, and hold it back and not tell people. And, and bear these burdens in silence. I think we were taught at her age, mm. right? We were taught at six because when, when Steve got sick, I had people suggest to me that she should fly to another state to stay with grandparents so that she wouldn't have to see her father die. I had people, right? I mean, oh. and I was like, no way. I mean, I can pay a therapist to navigate her memories. I can't pay a therapist to create them. That will not happen in our family. I had people who said to me after Steve died, you know, you should really stop crying because you're going to make your daughter sad. Really? I don't think I'm the one making her sad. I think the fact that her dad died is what makes her sad, right? Oftentimes, I know when I, when I was young and my hamster died, you know, I was given another hamster and told, don't cry over the first hamster. Now you've got another one. That wasn't the same hamster, right? As, as children, we are told, replace. If we move to a new area as a child, we're told to find new friends. I even did that with my own daughter, not, not on purpose, but I moved her to Portland a year after her dad died and was like, okay, new life. No, we need to grieve the life we are leaving and recognize the pain in that. And the two can coexist. After Emily, um, or after Steve died, about two weeks later, the movie Inside Out came out. And I must have taken Emily a dozen times. And she kept saying, Mommy, why are we going to the same movie over and over again? And I was like, you can get some popcorn. Everything will be fine. And the reason I did that, Jesse, was because it taught us that joy and sadness can coexist. Yes. And I didn't believe it. I didn't believe it. It took me years to believe it. Because I thought, I can't be this heartbroken. I can't be this much in despair, this angry, this anxious, this fearful, and still find joy. How is that possible? And yet little kids, that's exactly what they do. They go from joy to sadness, joy to sadness. The very day Steve died, Emily was out playing with her friends, and then she was coming and sobbing, and then she was out playing, and then she was coming and screaming, and then she was out playing. They know. We, we, we beat it out, you know, not actually, but we... we we, we remove it from them. We, we force them to suppress it because we think we're doing the right thing. These are well-intentioned um, actions that we take as parents, and yet 
ultimately what we really need to be doing is running toward their pain, running toward the tears, providing the padded room to scream and yell. You know, I bought her a grumpy cat stuffed animal that she could throw at the wall when she needed to. I mean, we raged. Sometimes I thought our neighbors were going to call the police. We raged so loud. Mm. But now at, at 12, she can, oh, she can tell me when she's angry. She can tell me when she's sad. She can feel those feelings. And that's all I've ever wanted for. Her. Do you see, I'm curious, Leslie, do you see that? At, I don't know if it's a maturity or if it's a an evolution and self-awareness with your daughter compared to other 12-year-olds and her ability to to process, to articulate what she's feeling, to express it in ways that maybe other kids might not have a, a maturity or self-awareness to. I do. And I think there are a number of reasons why. Um, we completely normalized therapists and counselors and coaches in our house. So we normalized that so much that when we moved to Portland, I got a call from another parent who said, can you please ask your daughter to stop asking my child who her therapist is? Because, <laughs> because my kid was, was nine and so comfortable. <laughs> well, who's your therapist? It was like, well, who's your babysitter? You know, it was just like another person. Who's your mom? Who's your dad? And the other parent was like, I'm not comfortable with your child asking that. And I said, well, I'm sorry, this is normal in our household. Your child doesn't need to answer. She can tell her to buzz off. But no, I'm, I, I'm not going to ask her to stop asking. Because in our house, emotions and reflecting on our emotions and being with them is part of what we do. Now, she's a tween. So is she doing that all the time with me? Of course not. She's age appropriate. She thinks, you know, I don't want to tell you everything, mom. No problem. But when it comes down to it, she knows the language. And um, I think it's critical at these ages that we give them agency and the ability to say, like, this makes me really mad. And Emily recently told me she's really mad at me for moving. Hmm. She's mad at me that I moved her away from where her dad died. And we moved a year later. And, um, you know, I can't, I can't change that. All I can do is acknowledge it and hear her and listen to her. I can't make it better. I can just acknowledge. And that's what we need to get back to doing as adults is acknowledging. So often we think, well, if I don't, if I don't look Jesse in the eye, then he'll know I'm respecting his grief. Yeah. He'll know that if I don't bring it up, that he'll just, he'll just telepathically know that I'm with him. No, no, no. You have to say it. You have to look people in the eye and acknowledge it. It's not, you're not fixing it. You're not solving it. You're just acknowledging it. That's human. I'm curious, what is, and I don't, I don't like using best and worst, so please forgive me, but for lack of a better terminology, I remember when my friend Gabe took his life, and I'll never forget this, a, a friend of mine named Melanie, it was about, I don't think it was the next day, it was about 48 hours later or so, and she came up to me and she gave me a hug. And I remember her looking me in the eye and I still had, you know, we're still kind of holding each other and she's crying and she looks at me and she's like, I so badly want to help you right now, but I don't know what to do. 
And <clears throat> I think I appreciated her honesty so much because I felt like everybody didn't know what to do and nobody knew. And so then what ended up happening was you had people trying to fill in the space, fill mm -hmm. in the silence, mm -hmm. trying to, you know, Hey, this or Hey, that or something. So I guess again, for the lack of better terminology, what was, is, or is there a best piece of advice or guidance or just a gesture that somebody did during that time for you that was really helpful? And I, I asked that because I think that so many of us, when we are faced with these traumatic losses in life, it pulls at our heartstrings and we want to help people so desperately, especially when there are people. But then we're often also can be can become paralyzed by that fear of, I don't want to say the wrong thing. I don't want to do the wrong thing. I don't know what to say. I don't know how to say it. I don't want to hurt them more. I don't want to add more to their plate. You know, those kinds of things we go through. So what I'm curious, was there anything that really stood out to you as being extremely helpful that people might be able to put as a feather in their cap for when a loved one goes through something rough? Yeah. I mean, I think the first thing I would say is that we have to get out of I and get into you. So mm. when you were just giving the example, you were like, I'm gonna say the wrong thing. I'm gonna do the wrong thing. I'm not gonna know what to say. I'm not gonna know what to do. That was all about you and yeah. your reaction to what is happening. And what I invite people to do who love someone who's grieving is to make whatever you do about the person who's grieving and think of it one way right? You're not looking for a reaction. You're not looking for a response. You're looking to just literally send love, send your, your thoughts, your hugs to that person. And that's always one of the first things I suggest to people that a little, you know, if, if somebody's a texter, send them a text. I, you know, I love you. I'm thinking of you right now. I'm here for the long haul. No need to respond. Just know that in this moment, I am literally putting my arms around you. No need to respond. I couldn't respond. No need mm -hmm. to respond. Or if they like phone calls, call and, and if you get their voicemail, you leave a message. No need to respond. This is just about putting love and energy and healing into the direction of the person who's grieving. And when you do that, when you take a moment to think, what would be helpful for Jesse, right? What would Jesse really, what would be helpful for him? Well, it could be a text. It could be a call. It could be, I know that Jesse loves that green smoothie from the, the shop at the corner. I'm going to pick one up and I'm going to put it on his doorstep and I'm just going to send him a text and let him know it's there. Or I'm going to go get her. I, at the time I was drinking vanilla lattes I had friends who would just literally leave one on my doorstep or my favorite bagel and cream cheese. Or I had other friends who knew I loved Oprah magazine. There were a few Oprah magazines. It was one way. I wasn't required to give something back. And I think this is especially important in our culture where we feel like we owe, right? Yes. Like, oh, in order to do something for you, Jesse, you know, I, you know, or for you to do something for me, I need to do 20 things for you. Yeah. No. When someone's grieving, that all goes out the window and they get to be completely focused on here. In coaching, we call it level three. 
So you're going into level three where, you know, you probably know this, where you're, you're, you're supporting someone else. You're listening to their energy. You're listening to their um, body language. You're listening to their words without focus here. Yes. So I think that's what we have to shift is away from the eye and more. Let's just do what we can. And you know what? You're going to screw up. It's guaranteed. You're human. I'm human. I screw up all the time and I do this for a living and I still just, just keep going. I'm sorry, Jesse. I'm sorry that I said that. I now know the impact. Next time I'm going to do better. Next time I'll do differently. I'm, I'm doing my, you know, I, I am trying to do my best here. Here we go. Hmm. What can I do for you? Right. I love how you explain that because it, it really, there's an invitation in there of evolving our relationships in the sense of like, if we look at level one is often I'm in a relationship, whatever that dynamic is, because you make me feel you give, I get something from you. Level two is you scratch my back. I scratch yours, right? I'll, I'll, you'll feel loved once you make me feel loved. And the invitation is almost to take that evolution in a relationship, which is the evolution I think all of us really want to take when we talk about what we want our friendships or family dynamics to be, right? Is that we can just give love for the sake of loving. We can just care for the sake of caring. We can just, that we don't need or nor expect that return. And I love the no need to call, no need to write back. Mm-hmm. It's such a simple statement, but I felt that when you were saying it too, because it, it really does give somebody permission. Because I remember being in those, in those places, especially the moments after. And I, I, rem- I remember one time, I, so one of my, my best friend was killed several years ago, and he was a very well-known public figure. And in the immediate time after that, there was at first there was initially a thought that I was the person who passed with him amongst a smaller circle. And then mm. as that kind of dissipated, I had people writing and there was so much, it was overwhelming. And I felt such a obligation to write back. Mm-hmm. And most of those people, there's some that were really concerned. And I think everyone had their own genuineness of concern, but there's also some who really, they were writing because they felt like in part of it, they wanted to be involved in the story. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to be, you know, still that little, that little boy wants to be a good boy, doesn't want to be rude, doesn't want to hurt anybody's feelings, doesn't want to let anybody down. And so I start pulling it out and messaging people back. And it was a time that I really, I I realized I robbed from myself because Mm. I wasn't being present to what I was feeling. I was trying to take care of others. And so I love that you're saying that is give people, just remind them, give them permission that they don't need to respond. Absolutely. Yeah. And I give every griever out there permission to do you. Just grieve the way you want to grieve. And if in fact you get something out of the act of responding, okay. If you're doing it for the reason you just described of, I was, you know, there's that good little boy. My parents taught me that I should, you know, do this. I want to people please. You're only going to suck energy out of an energyless time right? Mm-hmm. A time when what we need to do in grieving is really savor all of that energy we have because a huge part of it is going to just functioning. A huge part of it is going to just what happened, figuring out like, wait, what's going on in this world that my best friend was killed? How is that even possible? Right? And so we have to give ourselves 
space and grace. I mean, one of the things I do with my coaching clients almost instantly is I talk with them about what are the things that you just drop right now? Let's just stop because our energy is finite, right? We don't have limitless energy. And so if we're putting too much energy into people pleasing, into taking care of people, and that's where all of this grief stuffing started, right? No, make everybody else happy around you. And by making them happy, that means don't show your uncomfortable hmm. emotions. In fact, we should be doing the opposite, right? We should be talking to our kids about these uncomfortable emotions and talking to them about things that are going on. I remember when I, when I first took Emily to the Dougie Center, which is a, a um, local center for grieving children and families here in Portland. Bless you. Uh, when I first took her to the Dougie Center, the very first day after the set, after the, the interactions with the other kids, she said to me, mommy, do you plan on jumping off of the St. John's Bridge? And I said, I do not plan on doing that. And she said, do you plan on abandoning me? And I said, nope, you're stuck with me. I'll probably go to college with you. <laughs> and she was like, no. Then I called her therapist immediately and was like, is this a good idea? Should I be putting her in a place where kids are talking about this? And, my, and her therapist was so brilliant. She just said to me, Leslie, they're talking about it. The question is whether or not they're talking about it with you and how are you going to respond? So by giving her that space, by giving yourself that space to just do what feels right to you in that moment, and that could be responding or that might not be responding. And it has nothing to do with the person who's sending the note or sending the letter. It's just all, all that you can do is what you're doing. So I want, I want people to really give themselves permission in grief to just do what they need to do. I feel like one of the areas that societally, individually, societally, we really struggle with this is in the workplace. Mm -hmm. It's that, it's that wrestling match that we have to wage with ourselves of when is the right time to go back to work? How long should we wait? How soon should we get back? You know, we have a ton of expressions, get back in the saddle, whatever it is, it, mm -hmm. carry on with new normal, figure it out, you know, get the first one over, tear the bandaid off, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And inevitably, I feel like there's this pressure from society too to send us back into a workplace that is often ill-equipped with people who are ill-equipped as well-intentioned as they may be to deal with it. And then what it does is it puts us in environments where there may be more averting eyes, where we it enhances that feeling of brokenness, you know, loneliness, despair that we're already feeling. And I know from your personal experience, Leslie, that this has really prompted the way your shift in careers to addressing some of the things in the workplace. So I'm wondering first, when we're, when we're going into the workplace, how, how do, and this is a, big question. So I'll let you pick off whatever part of it you want to, you want to pick on. How do workplaces traditionally handle grief and what can we start to do to change those environments to be more accommodating to it? Yeah. So it's a great question and such an important one right now in the environment that we're in where grief is everywhere, right? Because grief isn't just about death. Grief is about endings and losses. And we are all experiencing those across the board. Um, traditionally, I think most companies have a bereavement leave 
policy where on average they give four days of bereavement and they judge the bereavement. So four days if it's your spouse, maybe two days if it's your sister, you know, they if it's your best friend, forget it, you're not getting any time off. If it's your pet, no. So four days. My husband died on a Sunday. I worked at a company always on the list of best places to work, greatest places to work. I would have been expected back to work on Thursday. It's laughable. It's laughable, right? I mean, look, your physical reaction is like, no way, that would never happen. And yet that's what would have happened if policy had been focused on, had, had been um, followed. So what do the companies do next? Case by case basis. Okay, let's look at your situation, Leslie. Who's your manager? How understanding is your manager? Will your manager be willing to go to bat for you? Can they help you get short-term disability? My company had a vacation donation policy. Are you lucky enough to get people to donate to you? Completely inequitable, completely inconsistent. And so case by case. So that means that two people at the same company could have extraordinarily different experiences. In fact, 100 people with 100 different managers, 100 different experiences. And that's at a place that is routinely recognized as one of the better places to work. Yes, and that's at every every place, quite frankly. That's even at some of these places that have bumped up their bereavement leave. There's still not necessarily um, an acknowledgement that what we actually need is, is leave for grief, right? Bereavement was traditionally given for a funeral. You can go to the funeral, you travel a day, you spend a day, you travel home. That is no longer what we need. And can you imagine if deliveries, if a woman was about to have a baby and HR was like, well, let's just take this on a case by case basis. How's your manager feeling about having a baby these days? Like, is your manager cool with it? Because if so, then maybe you can get a couple of weeks off. But if not, then you're probably just going to have to do it on your lunch hour. Can you keep that labor window down to under 12 hours, please? <laughs> exactly. Like, just, just keep it down, will you? I mean, yeah. that probably happened in the 50s, but that's not wow. happening anymore. There are policies. There are laws. And employees want policies because they want to know what to expect, right? That's part of the grieving we're going through right now. We don't know what to expect in our future. We can't plan. We can't predict. And so, but with policies, we'd be able to do that. And it's the compassionate thing to do. You know, before pandemic, Jesse, businesses were losing over $100 billion in the U.S. alone due to grief-related losses. This is loss of productivity. This is loss of, um, you know, uh, grief-related injuries and deaths even. This is absenteeism. Um, every other person, according to WebMD, was grieving the loss of a loved one in the last three years, 57%. That was pre-COVID. That was pre-COVID. Now we can only imagine what the impact is on grief and companies are all over the place. One person, the manager is saying, you know, just do what you need to do. We know you've got kids running around. We know you don't know what's going on with school. And other managers are like, ah, I just need you to Put your head down. We've got customers to handle. Completely inconsistent. And, you know, we call them the soft skills, these emotional skills. I, I would call them the, you know, really brave, courageous skills because yeah. there's so few people who are willing to go to bat for their employees and to say, you know what, we need to think differently when somebody's grieving. We need to think differently about performance. We need to think differently about how they work. 
And we want to be the company that does that because that's going to benefit us in the long run. Yeah, I feel like even too, they're, they're almost need to be classified as essential, especially for a company that's looking at really creating a culture that's one of the truly one of the best places to work, but also in profitability too. Yes. You know, that's, yes. that's the great thing about math is it doesn't really lie. Exactly. I mean, it's binary, right? Yeah. And when you think about the trends in HR right now, which are bring your whole selves to work, we want you to belong. We want you to connect diversity and inclusion. We want you to be included unless you're grieving. Yeah. And then we kind of just want you to leave the uncomfortable stuff at the door <laughs> and bring in the joyous stuff, like bring that stuff in. But you know, the uncomfortable stuff needs to stop at the door and you can have it back when you leave and go home. No problem. Come on. There is no way that we as humans can do that. And it is absolutely missing a huge opportunity for creativity and vulnerability and authenticity and connection. Because I know when I do, I, I see it, when I do our trainings and we do them on Zoom now and we use the chat and I'll ask people, tell me, we, we'll have a discussion about all of the different emotions of grief and I'll say to them, you know, tell me in the chat, what are some of the emotions that you're feeling right now? And it just explodes with anxiety, fatigue, hopelessness, frustration, anger, sadness, concern, right? Loss of confidence, loss of belonging. It explodes. And so these are all people in the same company. They're all feeling the same things. Number one emotion in America right now, according to Yale, is anxiety. We're all feeling it. And yet the idea that we would turn that off and make it taboo, how can you create connections out of that? How, how does that bring your whole self to work? How does that get you started on a path for healing? It doesn't, it just shoves it down and makes it darker. And then that erupts later on. And so the most compassionate thing we can do as leaders in companies is to actually embrace the grief and make space for it and not be afraid of it. And know that 90% of the time, these are absolutely natural emotions that humans feel. They're not diagnosable situations. It's natural. It's part of human being human. Leslie, I know you're doing a lot of work with companies and organizations now and taking grief work into the corporate world. What does it look like for companies who are wanting to do that to, to make space and to embrace it? What, what would that be some, you know, somebody who's a, who's a business owner, who's a leader in a company who's listening to this right now, what are some tangibles that they could do to start embracing that and start making space for that in their, in their culture? Yeah, we have to just start somewhere, Jesse, honestly. Um, what oftentimes what we've been doing is coming into a manager's organization and talking with them about grief. We have to kind of break down for people what it is that grief, what, what they thought grief is. Um, they have to unlearn a lot of the cultural um, you know, aspects around grief. And that includes oftentimes for managers, the idea that they have to problem solve. Because so many mm -hmm. of us are taught, right, as managers, that what we do is we fix things for our employees. We like get the hurdle out of the way of the runner, right? Or we, we problem solve. That's our job. It's 50 to 75% of our job as a manager, as a corporate leader. 
except that's not the case with emotions. It's not the case with grief. Don't take my grief away from me. I grieve for a good reason, right? You grieve for a good reason, which is that we loved. And if there's any other goal in life, I can't think of it. It's to have loved and been loved. And when you grieve deeply for someone that you loved, I take pride in that. I take pride. Steve was worth my grief. I'm sure Gabe was and your friends who have died. They're worth our grief. They're worth the sadness. And gosh darn it, when I die, I want a lot of people sad. I want to have made an impact, right? Yeah. Am I right? Absolutely. I want to have known that so many people were touched by me, were loved by me. And as a result, they're sad that I've died and that's okay. And so it's really important in a corporate environment to recognize how important our, our teams are, right? So many of my best friends come from my work experiences. It's critical to think about in a work environment consistency and equity. And with grief, we have a huge opportunity to build that kind of connection and belonging that people are craving in the workplace. So we can start small, we can start big with companies. Um, we do trainings, we create playbooks. Um, you know, we can do one-on-one -on -one grief coaching. We do team coaching. Um, whatever the company is looking for in terms of grief, we can bring our best practices and our master coaches to the task. As you go into organizations, Leslie, do you find that there's ever a, a resistance or conflict with HR and bringing things in? Because my curiosity is, is you're dealing with something so deeply personal. And, it, and it, again, it seems like so many of our, our policies are written to try to, you know, be inclusive, like you were saying, to, but what is inclusivity is really, we're going to be inclusive in these scenarios, but, you know, you go out there with kind of like where we ban the smokers to, or, yeah. right? And I'm wondering, is there, has there been any sort of conflict with that at all? Or is it, oh, yes. yeah, there has been. Oh, yes. You cannot support in others what you can't support in yourself, right? Mm. And so if the majority of the population in our culture believes that grief is a taboo topic, or like Brene Brown says that grief is the most feared emotion in our culture, if you believe that, it's going to be very difficult to have a conversation about grief. And we have heard everything from um, everyone at our company is young, therefore grief is not going to be a problem. I have heard... Wow. Um, yeah, I've heard everything from that to uh, we'll call you when someone dies. Um, you know, I mean, it, it's, it's, a, it's the first thing we have to do is, is, is educate on why grief is a problem. Now, I will admit that the pandemic has helped with that, right? That the pandemic has brought a conversation we weren't having, having in March when Harvard Business Review said that discomfort you're feeling is grief. Uh, a week later, New York Times said, all those feelings you're feeling is grief, that was helpful, right? In opening, breaking open the conversation a little bit. Um, it has not made it easy. It has just made it a little bit um, more doable to have the conversation. We have to find people who have had a personal experience and who bring us in as a result. And that's the majority of the time what happens. Someone has had a personal experience with grief and they think, gosh, I, I really want a better environment at my company for other people who are grieving. Mm -hmm. I know how hard it is. So I'm going to bring grief warrior in. 
that was what I was just going to ask. Does that, do you find that personal experience then it gives them a sense of maybe empathy or understanding for others so that if I'm feeling this way or I felt this way, I imagine somebody else may have felt that way too. I really wish that compassion was just something that we all maintained through our lives, right? Um, And the reality is that that's, that's unfortunately not the case. So there are some folks who have a harder time kind of putting themselves in, in someone else's experience or really seeing um, how important, um, you know, it is to, to start talking about grief if they haven't felt a very significant grief event. Having said that, there's not a person on the planet who hasn't been disappointed or had something meaningful to them end. Um, you know, there's, there's not a person on the planet who hasn't had a dream dashed. We just don't necessarily think of that as grief. When you think about workplaces, there's not a company in the, in the planet right now, especially that hasn't had significant restructuring, a change in, in what they're doing. Right now we're seeing, you know, skyrocketing unemployment. We're seeing managers move, managers leave, things change. And there's incredible amounts of grief in that. And so if we could just view that a little bit differently, like that definition of grief more broadly, um, death is enough, my friend. I can tell you there's enough grief from death. And to sometimes get people who haven't been through a significant death to view it, we have to tell stories and remind them that when a relationship ends, when the manager that they love gets moved to another department, when their best friend at work um, leaves the company, that we feel significant grief over that and we have to process it. Leslie, before I ask my final question, where can people find you online? So online, our website is agriefwarrior.com. And then all of our social media handles are also agriefwarrior. So we're on Twitter, Facebook, uh, Instagram, LinkedIn. You can find us there as well. Perfect. Yeah. I have a million other questions I want to keep talking. And I feel like I could, we could have a dialogue for another six hours on this, but I want to be respectful of your time. I often find that, you know, it's, it's the hard stuff in life that sometimes becomes our greatest teacher. You know, we, we don't fully appreciate the light without the contrast of the dark. And I'm wondering what is, the most significant lesson or gift that you've been given or received from your grief experience? To live, Hmm. honestly, to live my life. No more of the, I'm gonna be a good little girl and I'm gonna do what everybody else wants me to do. No more of the, I'm gonna take it because I don't wanna speak out. No more of, nope, can't feel grief, only joy. No more of that. Steve's death and the aftermath, the grief tsunami that hit me after he died has taught me how to live my life with intention and with a sense of being alive. And and like it, it didn't happen overnight, Jesse. It took a lot of time and a lot of work to get there. So no rushing anyone to seeing the, you know, the, the, the light when they're feeling darkness. 
it was the ability for me to be in my darkness for as long as I needed that helped me to see um, that there is so much grace and beauty that comes in those moments. And you have to sit in the hell in order to be able to actually live the life you want to live. So I'll spend the rest of my days as much as I can in the present, as much as I can doing for others and serving others who are grieving with the simple act of service and acknowledgement. I just want them to be able to feel what they're feeling. And I've been loving looking at your shirt of unlocking your greatness. We cannot unlock our own greatness unless we honor all of the experiences we have, all of them. And that part of unlocking your greatness, unlocking my own greatness for me, has really been acknowledging my grief and embracing it and becoming proud of it because it meant that I loved and it meant I loved deeply. And what more do we want in our life? Everyone, my goodness, are we going to want to rewatch and re-listen. Don't be fooled by the topic of conversation being about grief. I think if anything, this conversation is really about living and living a meaningful and full life. Gosh, did Leslie take us on a journey today, whether it was the story of her young daughter going out and being bold and brave enough to express her grief to the world, to be able to be a shining example for all of us of exactly why we shouldn't depress these things that we're feeling, but to be brave enough to, to articulate it, to say it, to shout it out, to let people know what we're going through, to learning how to create space to help and support others, removing the eye out of it. Gosh, that doesn't that want to hit home. We realize that we often phrase so many things of I and me. And even as after Leslie brought that to my attention, I noticed that when I was asking questions, I'd often refer to I first and then go into the questions. What great work for us all to do to take away and how do we remove the I? How do we make it more about you? Especially when it comes to so loving and supporting others. The simple permission to give someone that no need to call, no need to text. Gosh, wouldn't that be a great habit to practice under normal circumstances let alone under the most dire and desperate of ones when we are going through the shit of life and going through hell. The idea of going into the workplace and really looking at this, the four days for bereavement. I mean, any of us who have ever been through something horrific and painful know how ludicrous that is. Yet all of us have likely been on the receiving end of that where we felt an unnecessary pressure to get back to normal at a time when we are suffering and we are feeling the deepest hurts that we've ever felt and we've also likely been in an observer role when we see someone who's in that position where they are returning in a place where they're not ready to return, where they are suffering and not knowing where we can go or what we can do. I love the idea of evolving our relationships to a level three, a level three of just loving and caring, not with expectation of anything of return, but just loving and caring because it feels great to love and care and it's who you want to be. Just loving and caring, just because that's where you are, that's your home, that's your North Star. To go into a workplace and start to create a culture where it's okay, where we can embrace things, where we can, where we can accept one another, where we, can, where we can embrace the hurt, where we're not having to quantify or qualify it. The idea that we'd go in and have these things be a case-by-case -case basis, and you ask 100 different people and they have 100 different managers, you get 100 different results. Again, it probably borders on the thing of lunacy when we talk about it, yet we experience it and we've normalized it every day all the time. 
that doesn't need to be the case anymore. What needs to be normalized is recognizing the deep throes of the human experience and how horribly painful this is. As Leslie so perfectly said, her husband was worth her grief. And just as the same as her husband was worth her grief, the people you've lost, whether it's in death or if it's through end of a relationship or it's the end of identity from a change in career or whatever it is, or maybe it's something that's happening right now because of COVID, the grief that you feel is worth it and it's justified. It's not misplaced and nor is it wrong. It's absolutely authentic and real to you. And one of the things that should and absolutely needs to be normalized is how we approach these things. You know, we're human beings having a human experience. Every part of our experience is about being emotional creatures, right? To get to that place where we live a happy and fulfilled life, to truly get there, I think we have to hurt and go through the pain. And to be able to create a space where we're able to support one another through that, whether we're able to empower our employees, our team members, our culture at work to make grief not something to be afraid of, make it not be the thing that we need to revert our eyes and pretend like, well, okay, if I'm not looking at Leslie, then she'll know that I'm not making her not okay. But instead, where we can be able to look at somebody in the eyes and make contact with them and connect, connect deeply and just let them know that I see them, I hear them, and I'm here for them. And that they're going to get loved and supported through this just as if they would be loved and supported through anything else going on in their life. That's, I think, not only how we heal from our losses, but that's also how we evolve as human beings and our love and support for one another. Because if we can be there for each other for the worst of times, my goodness, how much more joyous will the best of times be? Mm-hmm. Leslie, this has been such a gift for, I mean, again, I really wish I had six more hours to keep talking about this because I think Me it's too. such an important topic. And just thank you so very much for sharing with us. This has been an absolute gift. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jesse. It was amazing to talk to you. Absolutely. We will see you next time, everyone, on another edition of A Handful of Hope. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening. If you're finding value in these conversations, please rate and review on Apple, Google, Stitcher, or wherever your favorite place is to listen to